Welcome to the Fiscal Fitness Podcast, where personal finance is about the person, not the numbers, and budget isn't a four-letter word anymore. Here's your co-host and certified professional financial coach, Jilly Manuel. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to the Fiscal Fitness Podcast. This is Coach Jill. I am the lead financial coach with Fiscal Fitness Phoenix, and I'm super excited to be here today with a special guest. I have here in the studio today with me, Jeff Quincy, who is a mortgage lender with Fairway Independent Mortgage here in the Phoenix Valley. And we have been getting tons of questions about home buying, refinancing. It is all the buzz right now. And so I asked Jeff to come on in and answer some of the questions that we've had coming up in our community some of the most common questions that we see over and over again, I thought, what better than to bring in an expert who can truly speak to this? Also, it's perfect timing because we are getting ready to roll out our Home Buyers mini course, which is set to launch on Monday, March 23rd. This is a course for anyone who has been thinking about buying a home. So whether you're a first-time home buyer, you're buying a house for a second time, you've been contemplating, is it worth it? Is it not worth it? What would you even be looking for? How much can you afford? What do you need to know when you think about buying a house to make sure that you don't have it on your list of top five financial mistakes like I did? We want to help you with that. So this mini course is going to answer all of those questions. Registration is open. So if you're interested in it, please hop on over to the Fiscal Fitness website. And we will also have the link to that in the show notes for this podcast so that you can get yourself registered for the Homebuyers mini course. So Jeff, welcome. I'm so excited to have a guest with me today. Thanks for having me. Excited to, to share some knowledge today. Yes, I know. Well, this is definitely the time of year, I think, to be talking about loans, mortgages, refinances. I know we were talking before the podcast started and Jeff's phone has been blowing up right now. Um, tell everyone what you told me this morning. <laughs> so I believe I had 73 calls yesterday. Um, a lot of those go missed when you're on the phone trying to take care of everybody. But uh, if you've been watching the news, there's been some downturn in the rates. So everybody's coming out of the woodwork, whether it be refinances or trying to buy a home. Um, that lower rate is increasing people's buying power. So that's, yeah. that's getting people off the fence and, and wanting to act. And of course, not just act, but act quickly so they can take advantage of the rate and, and find a house. Right. Yeah. Even in our Fiscal Fitness Facebook group, we've had people posting this week with links to articles about how the coronavirus is helping with the interest rates. And maybe now is the time to refinance. And there's certainly a ton of buzz and conversation happening around this. So I think it's perfect that we have you here today to kind of start answering some of those questions so that maybe you know, they have their question answered before they have to put the call into the lender who has 72 phone calls waiting for them that day. Let's just answer these questions on the podcast. <laughs> Absolutely. And, I, and thanks for bringing that up because just understand no matter who you're working with right now, one of the things that's actually um, stymieing the, the reduction in rates is prior to last week's movement in the market, mortgage companies were already busting at the, at the scenes. Um, and when this announcement came, there was a lot of concern about rates actually being reduced. Mortgage companies are probably, we've even heard some rumors yesterday morning that um, some mortgage companies were raising rates to wow. reduce the volume and kind of, you know, push people away from doing the financing. Um, luckily, we haven't done that. However, just know that going into it, that right. everybody was already busting at the seams. Pretty much our unemployment rate within the mortgage industry is like 0%. All right. the good qualified employees are already hired and working. Yeah. So there's there's no resolve to that other than to hire new employees and train, and that takes time. Yeah, so. there's just like a flood of activity right now, I'm sure. Absolutely, yeah. yes. Yeah. So. Well, Jeff, tell us a little bit about yourself. I've I've known Jeff for, I don't know, how long now, Jeff? I can't quite think like quite a while. going on. Yeah. So he is in one of my networking groups and has become a friend and I highly trust him, refer clients to him. I just love Jeff and the way that he helps my clients. And so, um, you know, introduce yourself a little bit. Tell us about where you're from, how you got into this business, why it is that you like what it is that you do. Um, I think okay. that'd be a great way to start. Sure. So, uh, been in the business for 16 years, originally grew up, born and raised in South Dakota, moved out to Arizona back in 2003, have uh, got into mortgages right away, kind of by accident. Um, my sister brought me into it, not knowing what I was doing, but so that's cultivated into a 16 year career. And 
Um, the reason why I like what I do is I take a different approach than any other lender, which is taking the time to educate um, every client versus, especially in this market where everybody's busy, it's really, I hate to use the term, but turn and burn, right? Loan officers are just pushing loans through versus taking the time, maybe an extra hour per client to say, hey, maybe there's a better way to structure your mortgage to get the goal that you want accomplished. Um, so that's that's what I take my yeah. pride in is is educating clients along the way and making sure we're setting that up, that mortgage up um, for something they never have to touch again, right? right. Versus yeah. setting it up on purpose. You'll see some lenders out there that will set up a, a mortgage on purpose, knowing that it's going to turn into a refi in six months and it's wasting clients' equity um, cost and time. Right. So, um, so that, that's, what's important to me and, uh, what I love about it, right. Yeah. Is, is hearing clients who have bought four or five houses say, I've learned more in a 15 minute phone call with you than I did through four transactions previously. Right. So. Yeah. That education component I think is so important. And that's probably one of the reasons why we connected so early on and like really clicked because that's very much what I believe and what I think is so important just for society at large. We all need to learn and understand more when it comes to personal finance and certainly buying a home is a huge part of that because it's the biggest financial transaction most people will ever make. So I love that. Also, I did not tell you, but I am from South Dakota also, Jeff. I did not know that. I know. <laughs> we're going to have to talk about that when the podcast is over. So, yes, uh, evidently we were just destined to uh, come together. So, so Perfect. <laughs> um, so... Jeff, let's let's kind of hit some of the most common questions that you get, the things that people are likely calling about right now with all these floods of phone calls coming in. Let's go over some of the most common things that you deal with. And then I've got some questions from people in our Fiscal Fitness Facebook community that posted in there recently about what they would want to ask if they had your ear for a little while. And so we're going to dive into those also and make sure that we answer everyone's question um, that we've kind of got down today. So, okay. okay. So let's hit from the top. Um, I know that, you know, some of the most common questions that people ask, you had given me a few ideas of what these things are, but one of them is just, you know, what, what does someone need in order to qualify for a loan? Yeah. So really, you know, any lender is going to be looking at three main cat categories, credit, um, income and assets, right? So credit score at, at the beginning is going to dictate what program that you qualify for. Every program has a minimum credit score requirement. Um, the income is going to be looked at side by side with the minimum payments on that credit report to come up with something we call debt to income ratio. I feel like that term's becoming a little bit more um, normal in, mm -hmm. in the industry where people know what that is. They don't really know how it's calculated, but really what we do is take your gross income we divide into that your total debts on your credit report and the new proposed mortgage payment, and that has to be within a certain certain uh, threshold. Again, every loan program is different. Um, and then assets, where's the money coming from? So a lot of the, the questions up front that has people nervous and they don't know is, how much do I need to put down to qualify for a house? Right. And the answer on that is, is pretty simple. It varies by program. It could be as little as zero down right? It okay. could be as much as 20% down. It could be more depending on what your debt to income ratio requires for the house you want to buy. Um, but it could be as low as zero. Uh, as far as minimum credit score, again, program uh, specific FHA is going to require a minimum of 580. Uh, conventional is going to require 620. But we get into conversations with our clients about maximizing that credit score, maybe pumping the brakes a little bit, taking some extra time to do what we would call a rapid rescore to make some adjustments to that credit report that gives an immediate impact to um, the score that then in turn affects the terms of the loan. Yeah. So they're getting lower interest rates um, versus just, hey, you're approved. Yeah, the terms aren't good, but you can at least get into a house today. Right. So. Is there a credit score where if you see it, you know, we're never going to qualify this? Like, what is there a hard cutoff that you would say, listen, at this point, we need to just really work on building your credit and improving that so that you really can't come in and apply? Yeah, I would say, you know, that 550 to 560 range is usually there's something on that credit we can work with to get them up to the minimum and start getting them into an approved status. Um, below that, then what we're talking about is credit repair mm -hmm. and, and a couple of different ways. I've been doing this for 16 years. Um, a lot of hand-holding with credit repair, but I also have a connection with a really good credit repair company, which is hard to find. 
Um, so I kind of look at it as it, is it an easier plan that I can handhold and, and walk through, or do we need the professional that's an expert in that area? Right. And then doing one of those two. Um, and but I would say anything under probably 550, 560, that means they might need a little bit more work. It's going to take maybe six months to a year. Yeah. Um, to get going. Yeah. So the good news is that if you do have a lower credit score, it doesn't mean all hope is lost, right? Correct. Yeah. And I think I hear from a lot of people that they feel like their credit score isn't as high as what they would desire it to be. And they feel like maybe they don't really have any options because like they're probably not getting approved for credit cards at that level. Right. So I think there is a bit of a difference it sounds like from the loan industry applying for a mortgage compared to you're going out and applying for a credit card with a 560, you're likely not getting approved for anything. Absolutely. And I think that that's where the, and I'm going to bring in another industry that okay. maybe ties what you're saying a little bit better is anybody can get an auto loan. The question is what's your rate and your payment? Right. So we'll oftentimes see people that just went out and bought two brand new cars with a thousand dollar total payment, which what that does is creates this mindset that if I got that, my credit must not be too bad, but really you got really bad terms on that loan with high payments. And now you come to a mortgage company, you got double-edged sword, is you have a higher payment that's affecting that debt-to-income ratio and doesn't mean that the same score that the auto dealer approved you at is allowed to get us approval on the mortgage, right? right? So there's a lot of different varying pieces. And so my biggest advice is step one, most people are so scared of that. I remember myself coming out of college, my sister was in the mortgage business, like I mentioned earlier. She's like, we need to pull your credit. And I said, why? Yeah. I didn't pay anything in college. No credit cards, I let my cell phone go. My credit's gonna be horrible, but I created a game out of it. So she finally talked me into it. We printed it off, put it on the nightstand. And I literally looked at that every morning. Like, what's my game? What am I attacking this month? And within six months, my score went up 100 points. Six months after that, I bought my first home. So I bring a lot of that experience into the transaction. Yeah. And let people know, hey, I've been there. There's right. nothing to feel, you know, ashamed of or right. embarrassed of. It's life happens. Yeah. But step number one is important. Let's take it and get on the on the right track. Exactly. You have to know where you are to begin with. Otherwise, you have nothing to build from. And I love that you're talking about kind of gamifying it a little bit because I think that's so true, too, is. I, you know, I use Credit Karma. It's easy. It's free. It's a way to at least kind of see where your score is. It's not always the most accurate, but it gives right. you an idea of trends, right? Are you going up or are you going down and what things are impacting that? And it is really fun. I see it with clients all the time where they check it the first time and they're maybe not so excited with the result that they're looking at. But like you said, three months down the road, six months down the road, they're seeing those numbers just jump leaps and bounds. And it's just opening more doors for better loans and better opportunities. Absolutely. I think it's one of the most important questions to ask when you reach out to a lender is what is there before you even pull my credit? What is your plan of attack if you can't get me approved today? Right. Because a lot of lenders, unfortunately, especially with, with how busy we are right now, a lot of lenders will say, go fix it. Call me when you're ready. And we get those clients, right? Because you're not going to go back to the person who didn't help you. So they end up coming to us, sharing their story. Um, so start with that, right? You want to know that the person who's about to pull your credit is going to stick with you through the long haul if you do need right. some help. And help so. to guide that process. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I love that. I think that's so great. Um, so minimum down, you mentioned anywhere from zero to 20% or more or, possibly. Or Okay. And like when we were talking about credit scores, and I guess the other thought that I had as we were discussing that was the difference in interest rates that people would see. So say you're working with someone that has a 600 credit score and there's someone else that has 800. What kind of range would you see in interest rates that they might be able to qualify for? So you can see a difference in a percentage point, percentage and a half. Now the good news and why you'll see a lot of people um, go into FHA loans is because at a 640 credit score, everybody gets the same interest rate. And that's because the that's a government-backed loan. The government's guaranteeing a portion of that loan, which removes a huge layer of risk. Um, so now everybody, whether you're 640 or 840, gets the same um, interest rate. We move over to conventional with that same credit score, you could easily be a percent, percent and a half higher than somebody with excellent credit. So that that's one reason why you'll see lenders use the FHA loan more. Yeah. In those and can situations. you, for our listeners, explain what the FHA loan, what does that stand for? How is it different? Um, when does someone, when are they able to qualify for it? So FHA, the FHA loan is backed by HUD. So that's the government entity that you'll hear behind it. 
And that was created years ago. And I, I, my dad always tells me the story. He bought his first house as a first time home buyer with an FHA loan at a crazy like 1% interest rate. So it was originally developed to help because there was a point in time before our lives where you had to have 20% down to buy a house. And the government tried to um, stimulate the economy and said, we need more people to become homeowners. There are statistics that show what the benefits of that are in regards to college graduation, income levels. Um, so FHA was born from that lower down payment to help first time home buyers. So a lot of people even now will call and say, I'm a first time home buyer. Does that qualify me for FHA? What's changed a little bit is FHA no longer has a first time home buyer requirement. So anybody can get an FHA loan as long as they don't already have an FHA loan and they're trying to buy a sec a, an, an additional house unless they're without outside of a, a hundred miles. So that's, that's what it's used for. That was what it was created for um, and still is a, the lowest down option for yeah. most people. And so even if it's not your first home, mm -hmm. I just want to clarify this because I think this is where a lot of like misconception comes in with the FHA loans. You do not have to be using it if your very first home. It could be your second home or your third home, but does it have to be your primary residence? It does have to okay. be the primary residence. That's the, the biggest stipulation. However, you could be selling a house that you have an FHA loan on right now and buying another house the exact same day with an FHA loan. So there's no required. There's a lot of mis misconceptions on that, yeah. that I've already used FHA or I haven't waited the three years for um, what the mortgage industry deems a first-time home buyer, somebody who hasn't owned a house in the last three years. So the only time that you'll see first-time home buyer requirements is on the down payment assistance loans which is, our, you know, those are going to be the loans that have the zero down option. Okay. Yeah. So if someone doesn't qualify for that maybe zero down option, they would still qualify for the lower interest rate because they're doing the FHA and it's what percent down are, this is required for that. Three and a half percent Three down. Half. Yep. It's yeah. the minimum. Yep. Okay. So that's great. I think for people to know that that's an option and that if they've already used it once, they can still use it again. It doesn't mean it's all gone. Well, and I have to remember, you know, I work in the industry all day and you know, I know this inside now, but I'm amazed at in, in the year 2020, how many clients are still coming to me saying we want to buy a house, but we don't have a 20% down. Yeah, there are still people out there telling them you can't buy without 20% down. So just know there's other options, even conventional only requires a 5% down right. payment. So and there are some benefits to having 20% down. So can you speak to that a little bit like why people might have that as as their preferred method, maybe because they do want to have a bit more down? So I think the biggest reason other than that's what it was 40 right. years ago is <clears throat> you don't have to pay mortgage insurance mm -hmm. if you put 20% down on a conventional loan. And mortgage insurance, if a lender ever tells you that it's what we would call a death benefit, if you, if you pass away, the mortgage is wiped out, they're lying to you. The truth is, is it's the only insurance you'll ever have in your life that you don't want. It's, it's not to protect you. It's to protect the bank for not putting 20% down. So you want to get out of that mortgage insurance as soon as possible. One thing that we've been doing um, lately in, the, in that educational piece is giving people the option and, and something that nobody else does. If, if a client comes to a lender and says, I'm going to put 20% down, nine times out of 10, that's the easiest loan that we can do as a lender. And they don't want to take the time to say, hold on, there, maybe there's a better way. So we'll just use the example of a $300,000 house. That's 60000 down. And what we'll educate them on is let's back that down. Let's look at your overall financial picture. And this is kind of where you guys come in mm -hmm. at physical fitness is we look at that and I just said physical fitness, physical fitness, <laughs> caught myself. But we look at that and say, okay, so 60,000, is this the best use of that $60,000, right? And if we see a client that has zero retirement established and they're middle age, well, we got to change something or that client's going to be working for the next 30 years, right? So we'll look at it and say, okay, well, what if we just do 5% down the minimum, 15,000, we have 45,000 left over, and then we can go buy out the mortgage insurance with, with what is called a single premium mortgage insurance instead of monthly. And on that size loan, it's probably going to be, depending on credit score, like $3,000. So now we just save that client 42,000. They can go throw $10,000 into a savings account to create an emergency fund that they've never had take the other 32,000, get partnered up with one of our financial advisors and get that invested. Now, they're not going to thank us now, but in 30 years from now, they're going to call and say, 
you wouldn't believe what I have in my retirement account that I wouldn't have had had you not structured my loan differently. Yeah. So thank um, you for sharing that. I think that's so great. I like I know for sure a lot of people have no idea that they can buy out on their insurance. So is that something that anyone can do at any point or does it have to be while the loan is being written? So it's only on conventional loans. Okay. On that piece, it's while the loan is, is being written. Um, another piece that you can do, so it, this is for any of your listeners that are already in a mortgage, because this is what happens when I teach classes, I bring this up, there's usually a realtor that will come up and say, I just bought a house six months ago, nobody told me this, how do I get rid of it now? Mm -hmm. um, you can do what's called a recast. So if you have a chunk of money that you wanna put down as a principal reduction, you can have then that um, the servicer do a recast of the loan, which takes into account the new loan balance over the remaining life of the loan, which does two things. It can lower your payment, and then if you get to that 20% equity position, you can now get that um, mortgage insurance removed. Okay, great. So there's a way to do it without having and a recast. Every servicer is going to charge a fee, probably $100 to $300, which is way cheaper than a three dollars to $4,000 refinance. Right, exactly. That's so great to know. So I hope you guys are taking notes because Jeff is like giving us all sorts of really great tips. So you guys better know what good questions to ask your lenders the next time that you uh, pick up the phone. So <laughs> thank you so much for that. Um, let's see. So what are some things that a person really needs to think about when they're actually getting ready to buy? Do you have any like words of advice, words of wisdom from the financial standpoint of what's going to help them be ready for the mortgage or even even, you know, beginning to look at homes. Yeah, I'll keep that answer pretty short because it's pretty straightforward. You want to make sure you have your finances in order, um, right? Like, you'd actually be shocked how many people I talk to that don't know how much they get paid and how frequent, whether it's bi-weekly, bi-monthly. So getting your finances in order so that you can answer those questions. Um, of course, we're going to go validate all of that, but that helps with the pre-qual process and, and speeding that up. Um, the other thing is looking at your budget and figuring out what you can truly afford. I get a lot of blank stares when I say, okay, you're paying $1,200 a month in rent. What's a comfortable payment if it meant that you're owning your own home? And it, it literally would be 10 seconds of silence. And they'll say, I don't know, I haven't thought about it. Yeah. Right. So putting, kind of getting that down on paper. And I, I, I'm a firm believer that the people who hesitate with that is because they don't have a budget. They really right. don't know what the money coming in is, the money going out. What and how much they, room there really is there. Yeah, yeah. What's that disposable income that allows you to buy a house and still live comfortably without a big change to your lifestyle? So getting ready financially, getting that budget prepared, knowing where you sit, because there's oftentimes we as lenders can approve a client for way more than what they want. Right. Right. So that we don't want to set people up for failure or foreclosure. Yeah. So Yeah. Well, and it's not way more than what they want. They want it. You know, they want the $600,000 house, but they probably can reasonably afford the $350,000 house, which I, is what I see oftentimes on my side when I'm working with clients because there is a big difference between renting and home ownership. And not that home ownership is bad. Like, I think it's great, but you need to financially be prepared for all of the additional expenses that go into it, the repairs, the maintenance, the renovations that you're absolutely going to want to do to your home, you know, higher, probably higher utility bills because there's probably more space than what you had before and all of these other factors that come into play. And I think, I think you bring up a good point. A lot of people uh, don't think about that. Right. Right. Like, it's great. You're owning equity. It's you're not paying somebody else's wealth down the road. However, at the same time, right. you are taking on a whole new set of responsibilities and that does come with a cost at some exactly. point. You know? um, and that's where a whole different topic for another right. podcast. But, yeah. uh, it's important to have a home warranty. You know, my wife and I moved into our house three years ago. The first weekend, our hot water heater started leaking, you know, $75 trip fee. And we had a brand new hot water heater instead of 2,500 bucks. So, yeah. Um, those are just some financially smart things that you can do to right. minimize the the unforeseen. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I know when we were first starting to talk about doing this podcast, I had asked you, Jeff, I'm really curious, how many people come to you before they've actually gone out and fallen in love with their dream house? And can you share with me what your experience is? Share with our listeners um, what you typically see. So if I remember right, I didn't. I told you I didn't know a percentage, but unfortunately it's a very low percentage that come to me before they go out and look at homes. So it puts me behind the eight ball, puts the client behind the eight ball and, and potentially being set up for disappointment, right? Because if you're out looking at $300,000 houses 
and you fall in love with one only to find out you qualify for 250, it's not that you won't find a house at 250, successfully close on it and be happy, but you'll be resentful that it's not the $300,000 yeah, house, right? Exactly. So you, every day you're going to pull in the driveway instead of being excited. And be disappointed. Right. And right. instead of being excited and in a, a position of, I can't believe I own a house, all you're going to do is keep going back and comparing it to the $300,000 right. house. Right. Yes. So. We did some episodes probably a year or two ago talking all about cognitive bias. And it really comes into play when we're talking about homes and the comparison and like how much your brain begins to sort of obsess over it. And I always encourage clients when they're starting to look at homes to actually go look at homes that are lower than what they can really afford first. So that when they start to go look at homes that are actually in the price range that they're looking at, it's better than everything they've been seeing. And they're much more excited and more pleasantly surprised with it versus I see all the time Clients will go out and they'll do all the show homes. They'll be touring these like beautiful, beautiful new builds and, you know, things that they're falling in love with. I mean, they've got all the bells and whistles, super fancy. And then they start talking budget and they're just crestfallen. You know, they're totally disappointed. Their heart is broken. And we don't want that for you. We don't want that for anyone. We want you to get a home that you feel really excited about, very proud to have, happy, secure, And part of it is, as Jeff has mentioned, you know, getting the budget in line, figuring out what you can really afford. Those are all, that's why we're doing this home buyers course really is because we want people to come at it from a more prepared place than what most people do. Well, and I I think that the biggest part of all of this is we want to set up for success, right? So in my scenario, bought the house three years ago, we've gone up about $80,000 in equity. And of course I get uh, in different parts of the country, the appreciation is different, but we want to set people up for successful home ownership, right? right? When we came out of the crash of 09, all we heard was the stories of, of people that real estate wasn't fun for them, right? So it's making sure that that mortgage is set up correctly, that they're educated on what's going to happen short-term and long-term right? to make sure that the pitfalls are avoided and that they come out with that equity and are happy with the, the end result. They're successful. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Um, can you share an example of, you know, a time when the home buying process went really wrong? Like what are some things that people need to be aware of or know to avoid or like, what is, what is a story maybe that you have of a time that you're like, oh gosh, like, (laughs) so I I actually have two stories. Okay. Um, first off the, the big thing is job stability income is the biggest component of the loan, right? There's an onus put on mortgage companies by the government right now because of 09. Um, and you got, you can Google this ability to repay ATR. Um, so job stability income, the way it's now calculated is, is a huge factor in the process. So not quitting your job is important. As crazy Mm. as that sounds like, well, of course I'm buying a house. I wouldn't quit my job. It happens every day at every mortgage company that they're doing a final verification. Yeah. And they, oh, John, Johnny walked out the door yesterday. And we're like, what? Oh, no. So, and, and we called Johnny. He's like, oh, I thought we were done. And there was no issue. I was sick of them, right? Yeah. Oh, gosh. So, so in, in, employment and income is important, uh, but also your credit. You don't yeah. want to be going out and, and buying anything new. So our joke in the industry is don't buy the new car unless you plan on living on it, in it, right? And don't <laughs> yeah. buy any furniture unless it fits in your car that you're now going to be living in. So um, the furniture you have will work for a day or two after you close, right? right? Yeah. So I'd, I'd much rather have you have a new house with used furniture than a th- the same apartment with brand new furniture in it that... You right. went out and bought for this new home and you're not only disappointed, your friends now know that you didn't get it. So um, yeah. the story I have, and this, this gentleman came to me as a former loan officer who should have known better. He took out a PayPal credit card. It was an inquiry on the credit report that we got explained. So we knew about it. He knew about it. We were actually sitting at lunch and he goes, oh yeah, I took out that credit card. It's a $500 credit limit. And 30 days later, we go to close the loan and we do our behind the scenes um, recheck of the credit and he has a 30 day late. Oh no. So the very first bill came and it completely escaped his mind that he even put anything on it. Oh no. That requires a repo credit. His score goes down. He doesn't qualify. Wow. So oh my goodness. That my other scenario is very similar with a medical collection. So the main thing I advice I give is 
you know, it's paying attention to the bills, but when it comes to like potential collections is watching the mail, answering your phone. Don't assume that it's your debt, but you at least have to follow up and get to the root of it to see if it is truly your collection right. or not. Because a $25 medical collection can drop your score 80 points and be the difference between qualifying and getting the loan or not. Yeah. So Yeah, that is... Wow. I mean, just to think one little slip up like that. So you do really need to be dialed in, paying attention, communicating clearly. Don't apply for new things. Just keep it simple. When you're in the process of buying a new home, you know, it's like no new credit cards, no cars, no furniture, like you said. So just lay low. No. What about a job change? So like, say you're not walking away from employment, but you have an offer of a new job. You're switching from, you know, one to another and the salary is maybe very comparable or even improved, what what would that look like? So job changes usually don't have a huge impact. As long as it's in the same line of work, what we want to see is that you're improving, right? If, if you're making $20 an hour and your new job is paying 18, of course the underwriter's going to be like, hold on, why is this change? Not, not that it's a detriment, but it's going to absolutely bring up the question. Yeah. Like why is this move being made? It's not even lateral. It's a step back is what it appears. Now, it could be a, a myriad of reasons, right? Could be your work environment. You needed a change. Maybe the benefits are better. So there, it's not always uh, the end of the world to switch jobs. If you're w 2 making a, a hourly rate and you're working set hours every week, then that's ne- typically never going to be an issue. Mm-hmm. Where you get into an issue is if you go from – uh, w-2 to 1099, you have to have usually two years of history of the 1099 income. So yeah. that can po- pose an issue. A lot of times what we see that is uh, uh, truck drivers, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're w 2 for a company, and then they say, well, I'm going to go buy my own truck, and um, they become uh, 1099. And now we can't use that income until they've been doing that for two years. So job chain, again, comes down to call your lender before you make any big changes and say, hey, this is what I'm thinking of doing. How does it impact me getting Right. Okay. Nope. That's great. Um, so we talked about what happens like when things go wrong, but I, I know for a fact, you know, we've had a lot of conversations around different clients and scenarios and there are times when it can go really, really right. You know, where someone, you know, getting their home refinanced or moving into the new home dramatically changes things for the better for them. Can you share an example of, of a time that that has happened Absolutely. And it actually is a client you referred to me. Um, So Jill refers over a client that she was helping with on um, the budgeting and things like that and and thought that a refinance or some equity in the home, this might work and just reached out to get my opinion. And we were able to to do a cash out refinance. Now, please understand the interest rate on a cash out refinance is a little bit higher. There's There's a risk. The lenders don't want to see you going and doing a cash grab. So they, they charge a little bit more for that interest rate. But I actually did for this client exactly what I did for my mom. And we went and paid off all of her debt. She had enough equity to pull the cash out, pay off all of her debt. She's going to have a higher interest rate for six months. And then the same thing I did with my mom. As soon as she makes those six payments, we're going to come back and refinance her all the way down. So she's going to get the best of both worlds. She's going to be completely debt free but the house and have the lowest interest rate on the mortgage. Um, and in her scenario, and Jill, correct me if I'm wrong here, because um, it was a couple months ago. Yeah. But we saved her a net of a little over $500 a month. Yeah. yeah. So we paid off all the debt, saved $500. Now, if if the rates hold and we do that rate and term refinance for her in another four months, um, that savings at the end that's going to be realized by her is probably going to be over $600 a month. Right. Completely exactly. changing her budget. Yeah, completely changing everything for her. So I know I I was really excited about how well that one worked out. It made such a huge difference. Now, does it always make sense to roll debt into a mortgage? Absolutely not. This is something that we really look at very case by case over at Fiscal Fitness and just evaluate and talk about the pros and cons and what it would look like if you do this or if you don't do this. And then we loop Jeff into the conversation too and have him kind of give his two cents and we've run, you know, analysis on it. And in this case, it was absolutely hands down the best decision for this, um, this particular client and really made a huge difference for her. Well, and, I, and absolutely, we know we have another one where anomaly this client saving over $2,000 a month by paying off her debt through her equity. Um, not everyone comes out that way. Like you said, it's right. really, and, and even on your client, we kind of put our heads together about all the debt. Should it be all of it? Should we leave a couple open? Right. So, yep. which is great to, to collaborate on stuff like that. Um, but 
you, that's why you want to make sure you're working with a good lender because it's oftentimes that I will get a refinance request. And I just had one yesterday, especially with this small movement in, in rate reduction where I told the client, stay where you're at. Like right. you are in a perfect mortgage. You would be silly to change it because you're at, and then I drew out the numbers. This is pretty much any mortgage. You can draw out an initial set of numbers that shows, hey, you're going to save 250 bucks a month. This makes sense all day long. Yeah. But what I do is take current payment times the life left in that loan side by side with new payment that's $250 less a month times the, the new term. Right, yeah. Oftentimes that total cost to get mortgage free is much higher on the new loan, even though you're saving 250 bucks a month. Right. So it comes yes. down to what the what's the goal? Like, yeah. do we need a budget savings to get <clears throat> it to a point where we don't go into foreclosure? Right. That's one side. Yeah, the refinance makes sense. But at the cost of costing another 60 or 80 grand over right. the life of the loan, yes, we want to avoid that. Thank you so much for bringing that up because I see this and hear this from clients time and time again, where they maybe had an old lender who's reaching out to them and saying, rates are down and you need to refinance and your payment will go down, but they're wanting to bring them back to a 30-year mortgage. And people oftentimes think it's just the payment, right? And so we want a lower payment. That's a good thing. Not really factoring in how much additional time is going to be tacked onto the mortgage, how much it's going to impact things in the long run. And I know I ran one for a client, you know, this was maybe six months ago or something, an analysis just to see the difference. And yes, their monthly payment was going to go down, but maybe like $100, not anything too substantial, but they were going to wind up paying almost $65,000 more over the course of the loan by doing that refi. And their lender kept calling them. And it's such a shame to see that happen. And, you know, it is true. Not all lenders are created equal. And just do your due diligence. Find someone who is reputable, who's got, you know, your best interests really at heart. Yeah. And, and I would add to that, if there's nothing else that your listeners take away from this podcast today out of all the topics we're touching on is, you know, we say this, and of course, if being a commission-based salesperson, they think it's a sales pitch and it's not. The truth is rate actually doesn't matter. We've simply been conditioned as as consumers that rate is everything. When we buy a car, when we take out a credit card, and rate is important, but it's not everything. And, and to your point, right, I can have somebody with 20 years left on their mortgage, show them a lower rate and a lower payment, put them back to 30, which creates this huge savings that I can get them excited about. But if I don't do that back-end calculation, total cost of loan, um, it's putting them in a bad position. Right. So, and we have some software that, um, that we do that's called a, a total cost analysis that breaks this out. And the total cost analysis can't lie. Right. So when I, when I plug in current mortgage side by side with the new mortgage, if that bottom line figure of the total cost of that loan right. is out of whack, the client's going to see it crystal clear right there. Yeah. So it, it's, it's one of the downsides in our industry that makes my job both tougher and makes it easier for me to look good because I do those calculations for the for clients. Yeah. And you just want to make sure, like, if if your lender doesn't know how to do it, make sure you're calculating your own total cost to pay off your current mortgage side by side with the new one they're giving you. Because yeah. that number could mean more. Yeah. And so just to be clear, this is not something that's industry standard where they're required to do a total cost analysis and compare the current loan to what the new refinanced is. They you would have to ask for that specifically. You would have to you would have to know that that's something that you're wanting to request. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. It's a value add that we bring into our business. And there's a lot of lenders in our network that use the same software. Um, so I'm not saying all right. lenders are bad, but yeah. they're not all created equal. So yeah. there's some that do, some that don't, and right. some that are just trying to, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I hate using the, the phrase, but are just out there turning and burning. And they right. don't care if they're they're putting you in a worse financial situation. And the truth is you won't know you're in a worse financial situation for 10 right. years from yeah. now. Yeah, exactly. Until you're looking back at how much you've paid and how much mm -hmm. progress you haven't made maybe towards retirement and saving for the future and realize that you just spent, you know, $200,000 more on your mortgage because you've refinanced over the years multiple times and kept adding years on just to get the payment a little bit lower. And, and where that the time period where that happens that you realize that is 10 years later when you go to sell the home. And the title company says, here's your net sheet. You're going to net 40000 And you're going to think, if I would have stayed where I was 10 years ago, I'd be getting a check for 100000 today. Right. right? Mm -hmm. So that, and there's nothing you can do to go unravel that. So. Right. 
Yeah. Very so important. Total cost analysis, guys. You need to know what it is. Ask for it. If your lender's not already providing it, make sure that you are doing that for yourself just to make sure you're doing the right thing. So let's dive into the questions from our community. And we're going to end with these. We've got a, a handful of questions here from people in the Facebook community that had questions for you, Jeff. And um, Janelle, she kind of a perfect lead into what we were just talking about. But she said, when should a mortgage be refinanced? And at what rate difference? is it worth it after all the fees are added in? I didn't even realize how good of a segue I know, this was. my gosh, we are on it. <laughs> so so here, here's what I'll tell you, uh, Janelle. Uh, in the industry, it's pretty normal for lenders to say that they want to see a half a percent reduction in rate or, le- or, or more, right? But as I mentioned just a little bit ago, rate's important, but it's not everything. If you, if, if you can go down a half a percent in rate, but you just bought your house 10 months ago, probably makes sense the closer you are to starting that current mortgage. If you've been in that house for 10 years, the half a percent rate reduction is not going to matter. What's going to matter is what's the rate to keep your term at the same point, right? So you have 20 years left, let's do a 20-year refi so we're not adding to it. And what's the rate reduction? And again, going back to that total cost analysis. Right. Okay. Perfect. So again, the total cost analysis, need to check that one out at least half of a percent, but the time that you've been in the home to be looking at that. And Jeff, a question I guess that I have that leads into this, when you look just online or whatever, someone researching, refinancing their home, they'll see you can do a 30 year or a 20 year or a 15. What if you have 23 years left on your house? Can you do a 23 year or is there nothing like that? You have to kind of round up or down. That's a really good question. A lot of people, and it's been coming up with the refis now, is you absolutely can. You can do any special term you want. They're just going to require you to lock that, right? Like if you want to do a 27-year amortization, it's going to be locked at the next highest term. So it's going to be a 30-year term as far as the interest rate is calculated off of, but then we go and amortize that over 27 years. Most clients don't know. And what's sad is most loan officers don't know that you can structure it. They just think it's 30, 25, 20, and 15. Right. And there's a few situations where there's a 10-year term. Right. right? Mm-hmm. So um, you can absolutely do that. And we do that regularly to not inflate that, that new right. term. So you just request that they change it to that term. Mm-hmm. When, okay, we, do, when we do the refinance, we set it up with that amortization. Of course, we go through a, yeah. a lengthy conversation about how that's affecting the payment and right. making sure that it still works for Good. them. Good. Yes. Perfect. So Janelle, I hope that that helps you to kind of figure out where that might make sense. And again, you know, talk to a reliable lender and have them do the total cost analysis for you just to do that comparison on once the fees are added in, how does it impact things in the long run? And does it look like it's really going to make sense? Um, Matt asks, (laughs) this one makes me laugh, but he says, Dave Ramsey says that you don't need a credit score to buy a house. Is this true? Can someone with no credit history actually get a loan? So short answer, yes. Okay. Somebody can. I'm actually working on one right now. Um, conventional loans allow for it. So as we we talked a few minutes ago, rates are risk-based. So right. if somebody has no credit, is that riskier? Absolutely. So what you're going to find is you're going to find a higher interest rate on that, that program. So you absolutely can do it. I love Dave Ramsey. I, there's a lot of his principles that I like. Um, there's a couple I disagree with, which I think that goes with any, any right. person yeah. or thing you're following. Um, but his big thing on this, you'll hear a lot of people say, well, that works when you're a multimillionaire like Dave Ramsey and you right. can pay cash. Right. But he's he's right in this principle that you don't have to have a credit score, right? And he'll, he goes deeper into it and talks about the idea that in our country, you got to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars in interest payments to credit card companies to build a credit score so you can get a better interest rate. Right. He's not wrong there. Right. right. You yeah. spend a couple hundred thousand dollars in interest over your life to what? Save a half a percent on a, on a mortgage interest yeah. rate. So it, there's nothing wrong with that. Just it's possible. Yeah. Um, what we do, to, we, we kind of build non-traditional credit for you through utility bills, um, rent history, uh, other forms of credit to prove that your credit worthiness is there. Okay, yeah. perfect. So and when you say the rate might be a little bit higher, like how much higher are we talking? A quarter of a percent? Probably a, a half percent? a percent. Okay, yeah. so half a percent higher. So again, total cost analysis, compare what that half a percent over the length of the loan is going to be and maybe see what difference that would make. 
you know, over 30 years. Right. And a half a percent is going to be different depending on, right. you know, different loan amounts. But let's just say it's $50 a month because I am a math nerd, but it makes it easier. <laughs> so 50 times 12 is, is going to be $600 times 30 years, right, right. is going to be 18000 Yeah. So is, is it advantageous not to spend 40000 in credit card debt to establish a really good credit score? Yeah probably coming out ahead on that. Is right. it going to be a little bit more difficult, a little bit more work to get that mortgage approved? Yes, but it's doable. Yeah. So. And I mean, I believe that, you know, people can use credit cards very responsibly and never pay interest on it. That's what we do. But, you know, we had to learn that the hard way. So I think there is some validity <laughs> we, to like, we, we've all most learned people way. don't start out that way. Maybe, you know, not all of us were geniuses with credit right. early in our years. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it, I definitely don't believe that like, credit cards are all bad or saying that you're always going to pay interest on those things. There's definitely ways to use credit cards, establish a good credit score and not pay a dime in interest. Absolutely. And me and you would have this conversation before, I believe in regards, you know, I mentioned at the beginning about having not paid attention to my credit in college. Well, the issue in our country is you show up as a freshman on college campus. And I can remember I wasn't even 18 and somehow I still got a credit card, which I, I believe is illegal. I'm walking through the cafeteria my first day, and there's four tables sitting there, and they're throwing free shirts out. It was four credit card companies. Yeah, yeah. Well, all I knew is I was a broke college student. Right. And I got a piece of plastic that I can go use. I had no intention of paying that back. Yeah. I, I don't want to say that I didn't know how it worked. Right. But I, in my mind, it was like free money. Right, yeah. And, and I, I spent years building that like five or six years building out of that or, or digging out of that hole. Yeah. So yeah. It, it's, it's unfortunate, the lack of education, which is why I love what you guys do Yeah. in, in what is provided at you know high school level, college level. So kids are coming out with the knowledge versus reactive. Right. Exactly. So. Yeah. I remember that same thing too. The t-shirt signups. I, I think all of my initial credit card woes began on college game day weeks, like when I would have to get a new Nebraska Husker t-shirt and they would be out there right before the game and you could sign up to get your credit card and you'd have a new shirt to wear to the game. Because you didn't have to go up to one of the fan stores and spend 30 bucks. Oh my gosh. Yes. So thank God they outlawed that now and it does not happen to the way that it did back when we were in school. But, um, okay. Does that that date us? No, no one pay attention to what we've just been talking about. (laughs) All right, Amy. Amy asks, how does one go about refinancing in order to pull cash out for a home remodel or renovation? Can you please elaborate on this? How much equity needs to be in the home in order to do the cash out or any other details that you can provide? These questions are awesome. We have a very savvy group of people that hang out in the fiscal fitness group. If you are not a member already, little plug here, but get on over to the fiscal fitness Facebook group. There's always great conversations around money happening over there. Yeah, this is perfect. And a lot of people don't know, like I'll have people call me and say, Jeff, my house is worth 300,000. I owe 270. I need that 30,000 for whatever reason. And it doesn't quite work that way. So when you do a cash out refinance on your first mortgage, you have to have re- keep 20% equity remaining. So they'll only let you go up to 80% of your home's value. So if the house appraises at 300,000, the highest your new loan can be is 260 minus the payoff of your current mortgage and closing costs. Um, so you have to factor that right. in. Most home equity lines of credit will let you go up to 90%. So one conversation that we will have with clients that are, you know, maybe teetering on not having enough equity, they, or, or maybe they only want 10,000, right? Like, right. I'm not going to recommend a refinance that costs three or $4,000 to pull out $10,000. Right. Yeah. That's, that's a bad financial decision unless we are at the same time getting a significant reduction in interest rate. So the, the easy answer is 20% equity position, 10% if you go to your local bank and take out a home equity line. We can do them. It just inflates, you know, home equity lines you can take out for the cost of $100, $300. Um, all we do is double that cost and kind of add somebody into the equation for no reason. So like here in Arizona, we'll refer people over to a couple of the credit unions that have great rates and a great process. Okay. Perfect. So if it is a smaller project, probably the home equity line of credit makes much more sense. Is there a dollar amount in your mind that it would make more sense to do the cash out refi versus a home equity line of credit? 
I would say at least twenty to thirty thousand. Okay. Um, ten thousand, I will just just because the cost is three or four thousand. So I'm I'm looking at what is our recoup cost right. and period, how many months, right? So what I'm looking at is if the refinance and, and the cost. Just so you guys, you've heard me say three, four thousand dollars. It varies based on the time of year, how much the taxes are, how much has to be collected for the escrow accounts. But let's just say we're the, the cost of the refinance is four thousand, and you're pulling twenty thousand out. I'm looking to see through monthly savings, how quickly can we recoup that, right? right. Like your client, as an example, is saving $500 a month between mortgage and all other debts. And the truth is I can't even do an accurate calculation on that because who knows how long she would have been paying on those credit cards oh, yeah. just off exactly. of minimums. I mean, the interest was right? so high, yeah. So her, if her closing costs were 4,000 and we saved her 500 at a minimum, her break-even point was only eight months, right. which is crazy good, right? Right, and then yeah. you start factoring in. That's just based on minimum credit card payments, not what she would have had to pay extra, and it's probably even a, a lower number than eight. And I'm looking for a break-even point of 24 to 36 months, right? So that's it's kind yeah. of an additional calculation we have to do to determine whether or not we would recommend it more right. so than the dollar amount, probably. Yeah. So some just to kind of recap this. So someone who wants to do a cash out for a remodel. They need to know that there has to still be at least 20% equity remaining in the home. They cannot cash out any more than that, right? So that's Other than through a home equity line. Right. Yep. So that's the one piece to know. The second piece is how much is the remodel or renovation going to get to really evaluate, does it make sense to do the refi or is it better to do the home equity line of credit? And probably the cutoff on it is that is you want at least $20,000 if you're doing the refi. I would say that's when it's going to start making sense. Okay. Yep. Perfect. Thank you so much for that insight, Amy. I hope that helps. I, I'll be curious. You need to post in the Facebook groups. Um, you know what? What kind of remodel are you doing? How much is it going to be? Have you evaluated that yet? Um, Barbie. So she asks, is it worth to is it worth it to refinance a 15 year mortgage to another 15 year mortgage if the interest rate has dropped by one percent? So they're not adding any more debt into it, and there's currently 14 years remaining on their loan. So that's definitely going to have to be a, a number crunching situation. Yeah. You are close to having started that term. Here's what I would recommend, though. If the rate can go down 1% on that 15-year rate, but they can re-amortize it over 14 years, then yes. Because yeah. you kept your term the same. Your payment went down because of a lower um, interest rate. More than likely, you come out ahead, but it all comes back to that total cost analysis. So right. what is the current payment over the remaining 14 years? What is the new payment times the, the new 14 years? Right, if that, plus the I, fees, right. I tell yeah. everybody, as long as those two numbers, the new loan's even slightly better, then do it because you're getting the benefit on your budget. Right. And you've proven that it's at least break even or better. Right, you in know? the long term, exactly. I had a, a mutual friend of ours come in, um, Jill, and wanted me to look at his, his mortgage. He's going to save $90 a month. But when I did that total cost analysis, mm -hmm. he was over the life of the loan to be mortgage free. It was a difference of like 3,500 bucks. Now you divide that into 27 years and it's very minuscule. Right. And my advice was, if you, if you need the $90 savings, let's do it. Right. But if the $90 savings doesn't like excite you. Right. There's not enough here to say that you should go spend money on a refinance. Right. Just stay where you're at. Exactly. Exactly. So Barbie, I hope that that helps. So the total cost analysis is really what you're going to want to look at and then see if they can amortize the loan over 14 years, not bring it back up to 15 to just give you that one year ahead. Right. Correct. Okay. Yep. Perfect. Okay. So let's see. So Ian, he asks what, this is great too. We talked about first time home buyers. Goodness. He says, what type of help can a first time home buyer get? And how do you know when you're buying too much house for your budget? So a lot to unpack here. I'll keep uh -huh. it just for the sake of time. <laughs> I, I will, I will keep it short. Um, so down payment assistance loans are available in almost every state. Um, some states have their programs are set up better than others. Like I'll give you an example. I have history with Nebraska's down payment assistance program. Excellent. Arizona's is way better than it was 10 years ago. Um, there are some out there that aren't as good. They're trying to retool them and make them more consumer friendly. So you do have that option. What you're going to find is a little bit higher interest rate, right? That's the trade-off. And you're going to find a little bit higher fees that those programs charge, that those grant programs charge. Um, so a little bit more expensive, which then brings down your buying power and kind of leads into the, your, your second question. How do you know when you're buying too much house for your budget? So the debt to income ratio is set on every program and, and across the board, you can pretty much plan everybody's going to be at 45%, 45% of your gross income. 
Um, a lot will allow you to go to 50. Uh, FHA, in some cases, will allow you to go all the way up to 56.99, which is crazy to me. Um, so down 50, they can have 56% debt compared to their gross income. So this is their income before taxes and so insurance the, and everything else comes out of it. So do the math on this. If this is somebody wow. making good money in a 30% right. tax bracket, yeah. so they're, they're already at 70% net. Wow. after taxes, and then you get to use 56.99. So they've got 14% of their income to live off of, to pay all the other bills, Everything. to eat, to travel, to buy clothes, to, yes. you know, oh my Groceries, goodness. utility bills for the house you just yeah. bought, because that's not factored in. Right. So um, kind of got getting off topic here, but you, <laughs> you have to, the down payment assistants are going to have their own, usually 45 or 50% as well, debt to income ratio limit. Um, but how do you know when you're buying too much house? It's when you have a crystal clear budget and the house payment doesn't fit into your budget. Right. Uh, unfortunately, yeah. that's the black and white answer. Right. Because debt to income ratio is a very subjective idea that the yeah. government has set what it should be. A 50% debt to income ratio for one client could be the equivalent of somebody else at 30%. Right. Exactly. From a standpoint of their budget. So... Unfortunately, it goes back yeah. to your financial coach getting that budget in order with you so you know exactly where you should be at. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I do feel like it's a bit of a flawed system when we're looking at the gross income of someone, for one thing, and they're factoring that in. It's not money that they ever get to really use, so I don't know why that's part of the equation. Well, the, the argument becomes that they could definitely go off of net, Yeah. right? And then they would just simply reduce the debt-to-income ratio limits yeah. even further. And it wouldn't actually change anything. Yeah. So that's that's one of the things. Um, the other thing is everybody gets taxed differently. Right. So then, so how do you create, you know, a, a right. set system across the board right. for everybody? So it's a baseline. It kind of works. But the word of caution is that you need to really know what your own budget supports. Because, yeah, if you're making $500,000, is very different than someone making 50000 and how much money is really left to live on. For their life, I tell people that all the time. If, if you're, if we have a, a borrower making fifty thousand dollars a month and he only has five percent in leftover debt to income ratio, well, five percent on on his numbers is twenty five hundred dollars extra a month in disposable income. Right. Where somebody making five thousand right. and only having five percent is only two hundred fifty bucks. Now right. that's walking out into your driveway in the morning with four slash tires. Right. Yeah. And, and that's the difference between you making your mortgage payment that month. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I believe, I mean, lifestyle needs to be taken into account and all of that. And, you know, it's like people will hear this debt to income ratio and they feel like I can afford this house and the lender's telling me I can afford this house. And then they come talk to someone like me and they hate my guts because we start talking about what are all of the other things that really happen in your life? And we try to get very clear on it which is so important because you don't want to wind up in a home that you wind up resenting or feeling so like you can't live anything, you know, you can't do anything else in your life because all of your money is tied up going towards that mortgage. That was probably a bit more than you could bite off. So, so yeah. one of, one of my taglines is if, if you work with me, you're always going to hear what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. Right. right. And it kind of goes in line with this topic is you can get approved for more, but should you? Right. Right. And then sometimes we have to have those difficult conversations. I had a, a young borrower looking to buy his first house earlier this week, and and his he said, well, could I go higher? And I said, you could go way higher than, like, your debt-to-income ratio is 20%. You are perfect. But I ask on every application, and it's on one of my client intake forms, says comfortable payment and price range, right? I want to know before I run anything, where does your payment need to be? Right. It doesn't matter if I can approve you for eighteen hundred if comfortable is twelve hundred. Right. And if yeah. I tell you you're approved for eighteen hundred, you're gonna be more inclined to go to that limit. Exactly. And set yourself up for failure. Yeah. So that's kinda where I, I think our industry unfortunately doesn't look at that as the onus being on them. And I do. Yeah. Right? It's 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 my professional duty to make sure I'm taking care of my clients and setting them up for success. Yeah. Oh, Jeff, I think that that is a great one to end on. I think that was, you know, a perfect way to wrap things up. And thank you so, so much for sharing your insights, your expertise. I think we had so many just wonderful 
nuggets that people can take away from this. And hopefully they've gained a lot more clarity around what to expect with the home buying process as far as the mortgage and lending side of things and refinancing. Um, Those of you that are in the group, I would love you to share some takeaways from this podcast. Or if we answered your question, let us know, did this really help you? And do you have a more clear idea of what to do going forward? And again, I'm going to end with plugging our home buyers course, which is kicking off on Monday, March 23rd. This will be every Monday for four weeks in a row. We do this course virtually, so you can be anywhere in the United States. You don't have to be local here in Arizona, and you can log in. We're going to coach you to help you really get clear on what kind of house do you want? Can you afford? What does your budget look like? What are your non-negotiables? Really, we get really down to the nitty gritty so you can walk away from that feeling crystal clear that you know what you are looking for and that you're really ready to move ahead. So Jeff, thank you again so much for being with me today. Thank you for having me. It was a blast. Look forward to doing it again. All right. Awesome. All right, guys, that's all we've got for you today. We'll see you next time. If you would like more information about how we can help you take the stress out of money with one-on-one financial coaching, please check out our website, www.fiscalfitnessphx.com. And please join our private Facebook group by going to facebook.com slash groups slash fiscal fitness money. And if you have a passion for personal finance and are interested in helping others take the stress out of money by becoming a financial coach, check out our financial coach training program at www.financialcoachacademy.com and join our free Facebook group by searching Facebook for Financial Coaches Unite. We'll see you on the next episode of the Fiscal Fitness Podcast, where we'll help the world take the stress out of money.